have to wish my own mother, I think is watching, hi mom, happy Mother's Day, uh, and my wife, uh, happy Mother's Day as well. <clears throat> and um, I guess I would just say to my own wife, I, you know, get a chance to do this, um, I couldn't do what I do without you. Case in point, she's not here because our kids are sick, so she has to be home, live stream. God bless the live stream though. So honey, I love you. Um, we're going to be in Esther chapter 4, so go ahead and open that up. But before we do, I have some announcements for you. So, uh, some announcements that I have for you guys. And one of the things I wanted to just remind you, as, as Pastor Nate's done a really good job of, is our, <clears throat> our mission as a church is uniting people to life in Christ. So we don't just do events and things just to do them. We want everything that we do to be uh, attached to that, that mission, that vision of uniting people to life in Christ. Uh, so a, a few uh, that I want to remind you of. First, we have a prayer and worship night coming up next week. So Friday uh, at 7.30 here, and it's exactly as described, right? Prayer and worship. We'll have some guided time of prayer together uh, through our prayer team. And it's a really sweet time, can I be honest, uh, where we get to be in groups with one another and pray uh, over all sorts of different things and categories. Uh, so uh, come join us for that. So again, prayer and worship night, Friday, May 13th. Next week, 7.30. We have a member gathering coming up uh, Sunday, June 5th, after worship. So that's another one-service Sunday. And we're going to do a member gathering directly following that. We figured, hey, why not? we got the space to do it. Not doing two services that day. And then we're also going to make it fun. So we're going to have some refreshments. So you guys are welcome to bring some breakfasty items, and we'll have those after uh, that member gathering uh, so that we can uh, spend some time together as well. Uh, I'd encourage you again, member or not, please please make it a point to stay for that. Uh, it's a, a wonderful time to be able to discuss kind of what's going on in the life of, the, of our church and where we're headed. Uh, next is foundations. So every month, or I'm sorry, every Sunday in the month of June after our worship services, we're going to have foundations. Uh, and, and what this is, is it's um, as a glimpse into who we are as a church, it's also our pathway to membership. So it's kind of good for two categories of people. If you find yourself... Uh, relatively new here, and you're like, hey, what's this church all about? Foundations is great to get an understanding of who is the church, what do they believe, who are their leaders, etc. And then again, if you desire to be a member here, kind of committing to the family of God here, that's the pathway for that. So again, that's after worship services every Sunday in the month of June. And then lastly, uh, we want to get to know you, we want to help you connect to the life of the church here. So again, if you're relatively new or a guest visiting, you might see a little card in front of you. Actually, we have two different ones. We have a QR code, tech savvy, that's who we are. Uh, but then we also have a paper one behind it. You can fill out with a pen if that's your... I like tactile things, okay? So I like pen and paper. I'm cool with that. So if you want to fill one of those out, or a third way, we also have an iPad by our Connect Desk. The, the intent there is to help you get connected to our church. Uh, we have people, we have our hospitality team that can help you with that as well if you have questions, etc. There's that little table as you came in, that's where you can find them. So if you fill out one of those cards, hand it back to them. Or if you have questions, reach out to them. All right, Esther chapter four. Um, I am going to read it, pray, and then we're gonna talk about it, okay? So let's read, starting in verse one of Esther chapter four. It says this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, 
there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And then Mordecai told Esther, uh, they told Mordecai what Esther had said, excuse me. Then Mordecai told them, To reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king that was against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we pray that as we uh, dive deeper into this story, God, that you would help us to see the greater story that's going on. Uh, it's, it's very easy to get lost in the details sometimes. And so we pray for your wisdom. Uh, we pray for um, your insight, God. And we pray for hearts that are ready to receive and, and, and ready to, to be changed and ready to repent. Uh, so we thank you for your word, that it does all that work on our behalf, and that it does truly teach us, instruct us, guide us, correct us. And we pray uh, that you would do that work this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, so I'm going to date myself here. Does anyone remember, show of hands, don't lie, Instant Messenger? Yes. Yes. Wow, that's better than I, I feel better. Wow. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you my screen name because it's shameful. But uh, if you recall, with Instant Messenger, if, if you had that, or now with Twitter, or even with Instagram, which is the new photo thing, um, uh, at one point in time when you set it up, you had like a little bio and you sort of put different categories of who you were, right? At least you used to. I don't know what they do now. Uh, so you'd have like, you know, three or five things that would sort of describe who you were, your identity, if you will. You put things like, I don't know, coffee lover, Christian, music lover, athlete, something like that, right? Uh, and you'd list all these different things. I don't know. Do they still do that? No? 
Everyone's giving me really pained looks. So I don't know. They're just photos now. They don't actually say words. We're done with words. Uh, so we used to do this all the time, and it used to make me laugh because I used to wonder if somebody actually followed you around all day, if that was truly who you were, right? So if the, the things you put in your bio, if that was actually just a perception of who you wanted to be, who you aspired to be, or if it actually was kind of who you say you were. We see uh, a lot of uh, an understanding of identity, who you identify with in this particular chapter. Kind of comes to a full head of who you're going to identify with, uh, with Esther, with Mordecai, with the people of God. So I wanted to give that to you to think about, um, because you know maybe, maybe this is not what you do with Twitter, Instagram, and all these different things, but, but we still we identify in a particular way. We identify with God, or maybe we don't. We identify with the world, or maybe we don't. Uh, so I guess the question that's posed for us and for our characters this morning is, are you aware of who you identify with? So we're jumping into Esther. We're in like the middle of the movie here, guys. And so I just want to recap a little bit in case you're like, hey, I don't even know what's happening. So long story short, uh, the Jews are uh, in exile, sort of, uh, in, um, uh, no, I'm going to forget the country. Where are we here? Persia, thank you. <laughs> so I was lost, and I was like, Nebuchadnezzar, and it was Assyria, and then it was other things. Sorry. Uh, so Persia, yes. They're exiles there, uh, and all this stuff has happened, right? So the king got really bent out of shape about his wife not wanting to come be paraded with a crown on her head, and so he cast her out, and then he had this sort of maybe a contest, maybe sort of just this captivity uh, situation, finding a new queen, right, to find somebody that's beautiful and that pleased him. And so Esther uh, is one of the Jews that's there, uh, cousin to Mordecai, it's the other character we kind of deal with, He's sort of a father figure to her. She kind of gets into this, again, contest or captivity. We're not really sure. I'm leaning more towards captivity uh, to go. And she eventually becomes the queen of Persia, which is kind of crazy if you step back and think about it, right? And so she's there. Uh, and then, um, you know, uh, then this plot against the king gets found out. Mordecai's always sort of like creeping around the gate, trying to figure out what's happening with Esther. He's trying to take care of her still. He finds out about these eunuchs that are trying to kill the king. So he tells Esther, he's like, hey, tell the king. Esther tells the king on behalf of Mordecai. She's like, hey, my, my person or this person I know uh, told me that you're about to get killed. And so the, the plot gets foiled. And then right after that, oddly, Haman gets promoted. This new character. You'd think it would be Mordecai. It wasn't. Haman gets promoted, and he's sort of uh, the bad guy sort of in the story. And so he's kind of full of himself. He's really uh, strutting around in his power, getting everyone to bow to him, and uh, Mordecai won't do it. Uh, and it seems a little petty. It might be connected to the fact that he got promoted, and Mordecai's like, hey, I, I just saved the king's life. What's going on? Uh, and so um, because he doesn't bow to Haman, uh, Haman gets really enraged, and he uh, convinces the king to have this edict to go out to kill and annihilate all the Jews, every one of them, men, women, children. And this edict goes out the, very, uh, the day before Passover. So in a few months, everybody's just going to kill all the Jews in all of Persia. That's where we're, we are now. So the story picks up here. And I just want to, I know I already read it, but I want to sort of recap what happens. And then we're just going to break it down together. So this edict goes out. Mordecai hears about it. And his response is just terrible, right? He's grieving and lamenting openly. 
That's what we see him do. So he's out in a very typical uh, way for that time, but also in a, t- a very typical Jewish way. He goes out sackcloth and ashes, which was very typical, into uh, kind of the middle of everything, right outside the king's gate. And he's weeping, lamenting, grieving the fact that his people are about to be annihilated and killed, himself included. And then you see the fact that Esther catches wind of this, and she's like, what's going on? So she gives him some clothes. He's like, I don't want those, kind of continuing, perpetuating the grieving and lamenting. And then she tries to figure out what's going on, and we have this sort of back and forth with her eunuch, like this, this person that's um, you know, working for her, essentially one of her attendants. And there's this back and forth uh, between them sending messages back and forth of what's going on. So Mordecai tells her exactly what's going on in very specific ways, right? So he tells her, you almost get this sense of him like uh, grieving, but also almost venting. Where he's like, can you believe this guy? Like, did you hear how much money he's going to give to the king? That's unreal. He's going to kill all of us. And he says it over and over, destruction of the Jews, destruction of the Jews, emphasizing these things, almost to the sense that she doesn't get it. And it even says so as much, right? He says, tells Hathach, the eunuch, like, make sure you explain this to her. Here's a written decree so she can see it for herself, all the things that are happening, right? And then he, he kind of has to do that in a sense too because the next thing he asks of her is like the biggest thing he could ask of her. Because he says, okay, so, so all this stuff is happening. We're all going to die. We're about to get annihilated for 10,000 talents of silver that he's going to give to essentially go into the war chest to go give the king the ability to go conquer Greece because that's like the one thing that Persia didn't have. Uh, and then he says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the king. I want you to plead for us. But he says, plead for us on behalf of, plead for us on behalf of you, our, our, your people. So she wants, or he wants Esther to go to the king and plead on behalf of her people. But if you remember, before that time, when she went into this, again, captivity to be part of the harem and eventually the queen, he said, hey, don't tell anybody about who you are. Keep quiet about the fact that you're a Jew. And now he's flipping the script and he's saying, hey, now I need you to Tell me you're a Jew. Say, hey, they're going to kill all my people, king, including me. And hopefully his love for her kind of turns the tide. And then she's kind of iffy about it. She doesn't say yes, she doesn't say no. She's kind of, she's like, she kind of responds with just, hey, do you know what that'll cost me? You know what you're asking me to do? Everybody knows that if you go and the king doesn't ask for you, you die. Unless he gives you the golden scepter and says, like, it's safe. And so she doesn't say yes or no. And then he says, he kind of big brothers her a little bit and says, uh, do you think you'll really be safe otherwise? And then you, you see him kind of give these hopeful remarks uh, that we'll unpack later of saying, uh, God will deliver in some way. And then maybe, maybe you're meant for this. Maybe you're here for, for this very purpose. And then you see Esther sort of decide to call for a fast and eventually says that she will, in fact, go to the king complete for her people. All right, so that's our narrative, but I want to break it down for us, right? Because this is different than like opening a letter of Paul and you get two verses and there's like 97 things there. This is a story. So we want to, we have different aspects of this story that they're not in perfect structure. So they're going to kind of weave and, and overlap with one another. So there's a couple things I want you to look out for that we're going to talk about. The first is this idea that the pastor has talked about already, this idea of living in exile, living as an exile. Another one is repentance. Repentance. Another one is God's providence. And the last one is this idea of identity. 
who do you identify with? And before I get into this, I just need to say this as well. Um, people might get grumpy, you know, like about how we sort of are explaining these characters, because this story people love. Uh, a lot of narratives people have grown up hearing, and then when you actually break them down, you're like, huh, it's a little bit more complex than I remember as a child. Uh, and so I don't want to ruin, I'm not trying to ruin Esther for you, I'm not trying to ruin uh, her bravery uh, or her faith, uh, but I think as I read this more and more, I relate to it a lot because there's just so much complexity here. We've talked about it already, but you see people's mistakes, you see bad decisions people make, you see how God uses that, but then you still have to live in the consequences of what you've done. Um, and, and then also you see these characters that have mixed motives, right? They have thin faith, maybe, uh, in the way that they go about responding to God, responding to the situations they find themselves in. So I don't want to crush your, your joy of Esther or Mordecai, but um, I relate to them because I feel the same way. I feel like my motives are mixed a lot. I feel like my faith is frail often. Uh, so I just I wanted to say that out front. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about is living as exiles. One of the things that struck me as you look at this particular passage is that once we're in the weeds and in the details of the story, we forget that the Jews were in exile. And we forget what that was all about in the sense that they were in exile because God was judging them. Right? And this is, all, this is also like the third iteration of exile in the sense that uh, Persia wasn't the ones that put them there in the first place. It was kingdoms before, kings before, people groups before. Um, but when you think about exile and God actually wanting uh, God is judging them, using exile to judge them because they've abandoned him. They've left him. They've disobeyed him. They've been unfaithful. And so he's using exile to, to have them come back. Right? That's the point, spiritually speaking. Now, the point of exile uh, for the kingdom that's putting a people group in exile is, is different. The point of that is to separate you from your home and to separate you from your home long enough that you forget who you are. Right? Eventually, you've been away from home so long that you've had to assimilate. You've had to adapt. You've had to make it work. And you find yourself to the point of, of honestly, relinquishing your citizenship, right, and, be, and taking on a new one. And honestly, we see this in our characters this morning because um, they're voluntarily in exile at this point. I didn't realize that. Right? They had a chance. They were permitted to go home, and they didn't do it. So they chose to stay where they are. And if you think about it, they chose to stay where they are. And uh, for reasons I don't, I don't know, maybe Jerusalem was just a mess, and they didn't, you know, no one likes to move, let's be honest. Uh, so, uh, and so maybe they're just like, oh, it's a mess. We kind of have a home here. Uh, things are how we like them to be to a certain extent. Yeah, they're complicated. Um, but it, it echoes of, if you remember, uh, Israel when they were in Egypt. Remember when they just got out? And they're like, oh, slavery was bad, but like we had all the stuff we needed. Why can't we go back there, Moses? Why did you drag us out here in the desert to die? It kind of has the same sort of feeling. as like, yeah, we're in exile. We're not Persian. This stinks, but at least, at least we have what we have, and we're sort of, you know what you know. But they, they chose to stay there. <laughs> And then you start to think about the decisions they made. So they chose to stay there. Then they said, let's hide who we are. Let's keep our Jewishness on the lowdown. 
And then Esther gets caught up in this search for a new queen, probably taken captive. All these, and then, you know, then Mordecai has to sort of keep track of her, and then he finds out about this murder attempt on the king, and then he doesn't bow to hand. All these things happen because of the choices they made. They didn't have to make them. And here we are, right? See, living, living in exile for them had a way of changing them. It changed who they were. It changed their identity a little bit. It changed who they identified with in big and small ways. And it has an effect on us too, right? We, we kind of, I don't know, it's, it's just so very complicated how we live in this world. Like this is not our home, and yet we really want it to be, right? It really does change us in, in really complicated, subtle ways. It kind of lulls us to sleep about certain aspects of this world that we really want to, um, we really want to be ours. So what does it mean, you know, I think about this a lot, what does it mean to be the people of God, um, but then I also really want to be powerful and successful. I want people to like me, probably more than I want God to like me, right? Or what does it mean when it comes to stewarding things? Do I have too many things? Do I have enough things? What happens if I want something? Should I want it? I don't know. What happens, what does it look like to be uh, a Christian in your neighborhood, Right? To, to, should I stand out? Should I be different? God calls us to be set apart. How does that work? What does that look like? Sometimes I think my neighbor, a lot of my neighbors are just better people than I am. Should that be the case or not? Right? So there's complications here when you think about living in exile, when you think about how, what it does to you, what it does to your heart, what it does to your mind, how you think, the desires that you have. It changes you. And sometimes it changes you, oftentimes it changes you and you don't even realize it. And for us too, with our faith, I think we get compartmentalized as well. Like, so now instead of being the people of God that God's called us to be, now our faith is just something we do occasionally, right? This is it, right? I'm a Christian, I, go to, I do this, I go to church on Sunday. And after that, oh, well, it's basically the same as everybody else, Right? it's changing you. This world's changing you and you don't necessarily realize it. So they're living as exiles. They've kind of chosen this and the decisions they've made have led them to this point. And then you start to see God's providence, right? And God's providence sort of wakes these characters up, Mordecai, Esther, to who they really are. Right? So all this has happened. The Jews are about to get destroyed and Mordecai responds in a way of lament. I think it's really significant. I hope you see this. Is that first, um, he's identifying with the Jews again. Now, we don't really know if he was being, you know, keeping everything on the lowdown because he told Esther to do, to do so. I would just kind of assume that that's kind of the same way. But either way, it doesn't really make a difference. He is on blast saying, I am Jewish, right? Because he's now saying, all the Jews are going to get killed. And he's like, all right, so I'm weeping about this. In the middle, like it's going in the middle of Clarendon and saying, you know, sprinkling ashes on your head with sackcloth that no one wears and saying, like, I'm, I'm grief-stricken about this. This is horrible. It's an atrocity. There's also a part of me, and again, you start to see this sort of move towards God, move towards the people of God, move towards identifying towards God's people. There's also a part of me that probably, he probably is trying to negotiate a little bit, saying, hey, this is bad. We shouldn't be okay with this just publicly speaking Maybe if we get all the other people groups that also are afraid that they might get murdered next, we can kind of overturn this thing. So 
there's complexity, there's ambiguity there. But I am an optimist at this point. I really think he's moving towards repentance. What he's doing is the outward signs of repenting, right? Lamenting, weeping, mourning. But it's complex because he's made decisions that kind of led him to that point. But you start to see him openly identifying with the Jewish people, grieving what's about to happen to them. And then you see Esther's response, and it's different. I mean, it's so quick, you might miss it. Right? Verse 4, Esther's young women and her eunuchs hear about what's happening. So they hear that Mordecai's weeping openly in sackcloth and ashes. And what does she do? She was distressed. I don't really know why. Maybe she's just sad that he's sad. But then what does she do? She gives him clothes. And she just tries to cover it up. For many reasons, we don't know necessarily. But one of which is like, hey, be cool. What are you doing? I thought we were keeping the Jewish connection secret, right? So don't do that. Everyone will know. And one of the questions I had earlier, too, remember Haman's going to kill all the Jews. As the reader, you're like, doesn't everyone know that Esther and Mordecai are like together? Wouldn't Esther have been outed already? It's kind of amazing that she hasn't. Right? Because they're like, hey, that guy that you talk to at the gate all the time, the one's creeping around trying to figure out all the stuff all the time, aren't you with him? He's Jewish. Aren't you Jewish? Right? So she's trying to survive. She's like, hey, I thought we had a deal. I thought we were doing this. On one level. And also, she, she takes action before she understands what's happening. She doesn't know. Right? Again, we're talking about living in exile. She is removed for a lot of different reasons, but she's removed from what's happening. Literally, because she's in the palace, but also, like, do you see the, the difference in character? Mordecai's always trying to figure out what's happening with her. He's always trying to stay around her and figure it out, and she, she's not. She doesn't know what's happening with him. And what's more, she doesn't actually seem to care too much. Only after he rejects the clothes, then she's like, okay, why are you upset? And he tells her in grave detail all the things that are happening, which again speaks to the fact she doesn't know. She's not sure. She's uninformed about what's happening to her people under her nose. Right? He, he tells her all the things, and he actually has to have it explained to her. Gives her, a, <laughs> gives her a written record. This is what's happening. Read it and weep like me, literally. But then he poses the question to her that sort of awakens her as well to her true identity, and to repentance, which is go to the king and identify with your people. Plead on behalf of your people. Right? Something that he already agreed and they worked out not to do. Right? It's not an easy question for her. Sometimes I think we think of, when we talk about this idea of you know, being a Christian, living in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world, it's sort of like this like, easy light switch that we can sort of turn on and turn off. But think about it for her. She, said, she had to say, that was the question was, identify as a child of God or as the queen of Persia? Right? The queen of the most powerful kingdom in the entire world. Or a child of God where you're going to be hated, kind of unliked, generally speaking, or killed. Right? It's not an easy decision to make at all. Right? And we struggle with that in big ways too, and small ways. 
we want to fit in so bad. We want to straddle the fence of what it means to be a player in this world and also a child of God, right? We want both. And we can't have both because they're in conflict with one another. All right, so you ask this question, and it sort of poses the, 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 the reality for her. Which one are you going to choose? Who do you identify with, as a Jew or as a Persian, as a child or as the queen? And she doesn't really give an answer. She kind of just, again, like she says, like, do you know what you're asking me to do? I'm like, that's ridiculous. I'm going to die. You can, it's helpful, though, because you can see her transform. You can see her starting to process all of these things. But then Mordecai, like I said, he sort of big brothers her, and he, he speaks to her. This is starting in verse 13 and on that I think is so helpful. Or I'm sorry, in verse 12. Notice verse 13. He asks her, uh, do you think you'll actually escape? And so actually pro- she's processing her identity. He says, do you think you'll escape um, the, the plight of the other Jews? Like essentially saying, do you think you're going to be safe if you just keep quiet? What he's doing is he's sort of honing in on the biggest temptation for her is just to sit back and say, look, well, I'll survive. I don't know about the rest of you. Right? That's her biggest temptation in her identity is to say, like, well, I'll be fine. I can identify. I can stay the queen of Persia, and yeah, it's complicated and weird and not great in a lot of different ways, but I'm safe. I'm secure. I'm provided for. I have value. Right? But he says, are you really safe? kind of speaking to the biggest temptation that she might have in all of this. And then he says, he goes further and says, uh, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the passage everyone remembers in Esther. Um, these words echo the covenant God's promised with his people. He says, promise deliverance from another place. This is what we talked about in weeks past. The idea that um, there's a bigger story going on here. Not one of just Esther and Mordecai and a crazy king and Haman. But there's a bigger story in the fact that God is providing a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. Eradicate evil for all time. And it's going to come from the Jewish people. Right? So there's, there's a, a bigger story going on here. But also it's calling to the fact that there's echoes of God's covenant and promise to his people, right? That I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will redeem you. I will rescue you. And so if that's true, then in some way, shape, or form, these people have to survive, right? Now, whether he believed that fully, I don't know. Whether he's just a great communicator, I don't know. But that that echo is still there, full and clear. And then he also says, who knows, maybe you're here for this reason. I think what he's doing there is showing her that God's purposes here are so much bigger than just your, your own self-interest, Esther. So much bigger than just your self-interest. He's not just concerned with our survival, your survival. There's, there's wheels in motion, there's things that are happening that God is doing that are so much bigger. Even in the, again, his providence to be able to bring Israel to this, or the Jewish people to this destruction that it awakes Mordecai. And Mordecai lamenting goes to Esther and says, plead for your people, wakes Esther up to who they are. Right, so then what she does is she replies and says, okay, I'll do it. 
He says, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and they want to hold a three-day fast. No eating, no drinking for three days, three nights. Her and her young women do the same thing, and then she'll go to the king. And you start to see the same transformation in her that you did in Mordecai, right? She starts to act like a Jew. She identifies with a Jew. She, she fasts as they would and prepares himself as they would. So she's starting to think, act. And you also see the fact that she gives Mordecai an order. That's the, that's the first time that happened. It's like, you go do this now, right? So she's changing. She's moving towards repentance in a similar way as Mordecai. And again, we talked about some of these themes. We want to exile God's providence, who we are, this identity. There's a lot of parallels between this particular passage and Joel 2. I'm going to turn there because I think it's very significant. Because God is after not just our right actions. He's after our, our hearts, right? He's after our hearts. He doesn't just want the Jewish people to survive he wants them to worship him, return to him. He doesn't just want our pulses. He wants our hearts, right? I'm going to read this. This is Joel 2, verse 12. Again, God's people in judgment, and this is their response to that. And listen to the parallels really quick. Listen to the parallels. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Same things that... Mordecai was doing, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, like Esther. Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, Assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should we say among the peoples, where is their God? You see, God wants repentance out of his people. This isn't just a survivor who dies or who gets power sort of story or game, right? Even before this story, they, the, the people of God were in exile because he wanted them to return to him. And then we're seeing the story kind of unfold in specific to show us how tricky our hearts are, right? We still choose other things over God. Even when he's on blast saying, return to me, I'm, I'm removing you from your home, so that you'll actually get it. Even when you're there, you're like, oh, you know what? Here's kind of nice. We, we, our hearts are just so fickle that way. We desperately want anything and everything apart from God. Right? And then God, still in his mercy, in his providence, uses those things, our own choices, in fact, to wake us up and say, oh, no, you're mine. Return to me. Right? So one of the big uh, pieces that I talked about was identity, right? Who do you identify with? That was the big question for Mordecai, for Esther, is are you going to identify as God's people? Or are you going to just identify as Persian and just kind of let it all slide by? Right? They both chose to identify with God's people. And, and, and very gradually, I would say, right? That's so human. That's so us. 
right? We don't just like full on repent. We kind of just like take little baby steps towards God. And there's echoes of hope in God in their words, in their actions. Uh, but remember, that the, the focal point of the story is, is not Esther, it's not Mordecai, it's not the king, it's not Haman, it's God. Right? That story that we talked about, this is just inspecific of what God's doing. He's bringing a redeemer that will crush the head of the serpent, that will eradicate evil for, for all time and save his people. We put so much stock on what we're able to do, but God is orchestrating and is providential over all of those things. But the reason we can identify with God, that's what we're talking about as God's people, is because he first identified with us. Right? He first identified with us. In Exodus 20, when Israel came out of Egypt, God gave his people his law. But before that, he said, I am the Lord your God. You're my people. Right? Our, our, uh, I heard it said last week uh, that, that God uh, introduced us into a relationship of personal pronouns. It's significant. So I'm your God. You're my people. Right? And we still reject him. But then he sent his son clothed in humanity, come to earth, and experience everything that we experienced. And sometimes I think we write that off. But you can't live a day in this world without knowing what it's like. Right? So he knew all the complexities of human relationships, of family, of racism, of being poor, being hurt, being weak, having temptations. All the things we describe of our heart longing and wanting other things. Experience all those things for you. And his identity, Jesus, and his purposes were never ambiguous. He came for the purpose of saving us, rescuing and redeeming his people. Never had mixed motives. You're never unsure of why or what he was doing. And then there's some parallels with Esther, sorry. But... Um, Rather than calling a fast for himself, right? Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed for his disciples that they wouldn't be led into temptation, right? right? When he should have everyone helping him, he was still caring and helping for those close to him. And then instead of saying, do you know what this is going to cost me, God? Do you really want me to go down and save all those people? It's going to cost me my life. He didn't say that. He willingly gave his life. Willingly gave his life. So the reason we're able to identify with Jesus as the people of God is because he identified with us. He came and got us. He didn't just say, oh, I hope they figure it out. He came to save you. He came to get you. And so we're able to be united to him, right? That's Romans 6. I'm not going to read it, but we're united to Christ because he united himself to us. Right? In his death, his resurrection, we get to walk in newness of life. We get to identify as the people of God with all the blessings and benefits because he lived for us and died for us and rose again for us. So I guess the questions, there's lots of questions that I think of in this, but we're talking about identity, right? So where are you most tempted to, to just live in this world? And it could be a really subtle thing. Where is God awakening you to areas of your life where you need to return to him? How is he using the different circumstances in your life, even right now? Maybe it's something really difficult. 
And you think God's absent from that. I don't think he is. And maybe it's something really good, and you're like, why do I love this so much? I should love God. Right? What are those things that are tempting you? What are those subtle things that you're making concessions towards of living in this world? And, and truly, what is your relationship with to God? How do, you, do you identify with him? Is it just a compartment of your life? Is it indicative of your whole life? Yeah, I can't say it any differently. We are called to identify as, as believers in Christ, as Christ followers, but we can only do that because he identified with us. That is the greatest news. Because we just think our actions and our efforts are so good that we can just figure it out and we can't. Our motives are mixed. Our desires are conflicted. But God in his grace saves us so that we're empowered to actually choose him. We're empowered to actually follow him. And we do it pretty fairly often. Uh, but he's empowered us to do that. That is the good news this morning. So um, I encourage you to think through that. Think through where your identity lies, because we, we want to identify as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Christ all, all the way. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that um, you wake us up. We are sleepy, sleepy followers often, kind of unaware of the things that are affecting us or our hearts or the things that are um, the desires that we have. And we thank you that you are so gracious and so kind to show us uh, where we're blind, what we're missing. The fact that we're uh, clinging to and, and, and clawing after all the world has to offer, all the while you made us to be yours. We pray that, we pray that you'd help us to repent. You'd help us to leave those things, abandon those things, and run to you. And you'd give us faith to walk these things out day after day after day. That you encourage us, Father. We thank you and praise you that you uh, identify with us, that you loved us so much you sent your son for us, that we could even have a relationship with you. We could be brought back into your family, God. We love you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.